Today we're going to read uh, two portions of scripture. One is background for the other. Uh, please look at Genesis chapter 22, and we will read uh, verses 1 through 14. And then uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19. Today, as we consider faith put to the test. Faith put to the test. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning in Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. He said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. And when they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will, literally it should be the Lord will see. The Lord will see. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided or seen. Now, turn with me also to Hebrews chapter 11 as we continue our journey through the book of Hebrews together. And we have slowed down quite a bit in chapter 11 because there's just so much here. And we don't want to miss any of it. So, verse 17 through 19 of Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. 
He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do ask today that your spirit would be the teacher and the preacher today. We pray that you would give us receptive hearts, new covenant hearts, hearts that are tender and pliable and flesh, fleshy and responsive, Uh, to the spirit and to the word which produces life and help and hope in us and we pray that you would bring glory to yourself through the preaching of this word and that you would open eyes many for the first time to see hear grasp and understand the truth and we pray this in Jesus name amen and so Yahweh or God tested Abraham now we've been looking at chapter 11 and what we have in chapter 11 are what uh, we have called case studies on the life of faith and we've been spending a, a good bit of time lately on Abraham and we come perhaps to the thing that is most significant in the life of Abraham and that is the test of which Genesis chapter 22 gave us a longer account. And it starts off in both places, both in Genesis and both in Hebrews, saying God test Abraham. God tested Abraham. And this is the key to a great life. This is the key to understand that you only become great in the kingdom of God through his test. So we're talking about knowing God's test this morning, understanding how God tests us, needing God's test, and then the passing of God's test. And if you understand those four things, you will be equipped. You will have a leg up on the life of faith. But the thing that I want to communicate to you is God does test us. And so let's begin with that. There are tests. And you have to know that they exist, and you have to know that they are real. And to start right off, you see here, both in Genesis 22 and Hebrews, we're told that God tests. What does that mean, and what is a test? Well, let's be brief. I'll give you a working definition. A test is something that shows you and grows you. Let me repeat that. A test is something that shows you something, and a test is something also that enables you to grow. And so, a test is something that shows us kind of where we are at a particular time and challenges us to grow and to meet what we're being tested with. Think about it for a moment. If you have had a test before, let's, let's say you have uh, a calculus test or an uh, algebra test, and the test is coming up, and first of all, it makes you say, do I understand the concepts well enough? Do I get it? Do I understand the concept that's going to be tested? The first thing an algebra test makes you do is it makes you look at and examine yourself and say to yourself, Do I get it? Do I know this? I told you I took calculus in college, and uh, I had a really complicated math four course in high school that I didn't think anything could be harder than. 
But I made the mistake of only going to class two days a week for a four-day-a-week thing. And once you get behind in math, it is the death knell ringing over your head, the sword of Damocles. But anyway, that's what a test does. How can I grow and advance in this area of knowledge so I can meet this test? Test both show you where you are, and they grow you. Now, just a little sideline. We all really know that there are two ways to administer tests. There are teachers, I've met them and you have too, who use tests only for the first purpose. They use tests merely to show what's wrong with you and leave you in despair. They use tests to get rid of people. They use tests to pare down the program. They use tests to get people out of the class because there's too many in the class. A teacher can be just a hard test giver, but introduce the test and announce the test and prepare the students for the test in such a way that the test doesn't show them where they are, doesn't merely show them where they are, but also it grows them. By the way, if you want to understand the Bible, you have to understand that the devil tests in the first way and God tests in the second way. Now, I've had a few teachers who I thought might be the devil, but in seminary, I had one professor who had lectured on the doctrine of Scripture and the doctrine of God, and that's some complicated stuff. And I can remember, I tried to write down every word, because this was a famous professor. People lined up everywhere to hear this man speak, and I was writing as fast as my little hands could write, and I went home, and I studied, and I studied, and I studied. And then it came time for the test, and I thought, he's going to ask all these questions on the doctrine of Scripture, the doctrine of God. I got it. I think I know the material. And all it was was 24 questions, matching questions, on Latin phrases and what they meant in English. Now, I happen to have had two years of Latin in high school. So I was able to manage my way through that test and make a passing grade. Almost everyone else in the, my class failed that test. And he did that to show us that, I don't know why he did it, to be honest. <laughs> and then I had another professor, and he was an Old Testament professor. And he was a wonderful teacher. He's probably the best teacher-teacher I've ever had. And he gave the test for the purpose of seeing how well he had taught and communicated with you. And he prepared you for the test. And after every lecture, he would have three lecture review questions. And then he would take time to answer those three questions at the end of the class. And then the test would come from the lecture review questions. So you just studied those questions at the end, took the test. And if you halfway had a pulse and paid attention, you could pass. Now, he tested in order to show you, but not so much to grow you. But the test God gives are tests that grow us. Regardless of how there are, they are administered, we just don't like tests, do we? Tests are horrible things. Tests fill us with a sense of impending doom. A sense of disaster is coming. They hang over our head like the sword of Damocles. They're very unpleasant. Therefore, uh, they're effective. 
They make you look at yourself in a way that you wouldn't otherwise, and they make you summon up and muster up what you can to grow in a way that you wouldn't otherwise. So tests show you and tests grow you. And the reason Hebrews 12 says no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Anyone who's ever been mentored or who's been taught or been coached well or has been repeatedly tested formally or informally will say that they have grown. So how do tests work? How do these tests that God brings into our lives work? What is the nature of them? How do they actually operate? Well, you see that in verse 18 when it says, even though God had said, and this is the essence of the way God tests, This is an archetype of the test God gives you in order to make you into something great in his kingdom. His commands, listen carefully, his commands seem to contradict his promises. Let me repeat that. His commands seems to contradict his promise. What's on the other side of even though? God said in the command, offer up your son as a burnt offering, even though he had said by way of promise, Abraham, I'm going to bless you and the world through Isaac. I'm going to bring out of Isaac a great nation and a particular descendant through whom the whole world will be blessed. You have a command to obey that seems to contradict the promise. In other words, a test happens when to obey God looks like to you something foolish or even wrong it makes no sense that's how you know God is at work now the promises of God are wonderful they're tremendous the Bible is full of the promises of God they're they're everywhere he says things to us like not a hair on your head will be hurt he says I will give you more than you can even dare ask or think He says, I will meet all your needs according to my riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Those are wonderful promises. But what is a test? A test is when to obey one of God's commands appears to us to pull you right out of the path of blessing. Here's God saying to you, I will bless you. I love you. I want to shower blessings upon you. Yet he says to do this. And to obey looks like it's going to lead to disaster. It seems almost to contradict. Let me give you an example. Let's say, if you have, what if you have a teenage son who's dying of cancer? Right before your eyes, dying of cancer. Now, you're not ultimately in a different place than Abraham was because you're called by the commands of the Word of God to continue to serve God And obey God, who you regard as powerful, wise, and loving. In spite of the fact that the light of your eyes is dying in the flower of his youth. That's a test. It seems to obey, to trust God in a situation like that is leading you completely out of the path of blessing. His commands seem to contradict his promise. Any place your feelings are strong against a command and your wisdom looks greater than his wisdom. It doesn't make sense to us. It doesn't add up. For example, if you know that to tell the truth is going to cause you to lose 
a lot of money, maybe even your job. Here's the command, but it's taking you out of the path of blessing. Let me give you two that are very common in Las Vegas. I'm constantly meeting people who say this to me one way or the other. They say, I know the Bible condemns homosexual behavior, but my feelings are so strong it would be foolish, wrong, or unnatural to do what the Bible says. I'm going against everything I feel. Here's another one. People say, I know the Bible says couples should not have sex outside of marriage, but I'm going to lose this relationship. And it feels so right. It feels so natural. Don't you see the archetype here? The test isn't even happening until you get into a situation in which your wisdom seems to contradict God's wisdom until you get into a situation in which it looks like the path of blessing is over here, but God says, no, go this way. Let me put it to you in the starkest way possible. This is very, very, very much what Abraham felt in the face of this command. And you haven't really been tested until you see that to obey God looks like it's going to lead you to, the, to a kind of death that will require some sort of resurrection. Abraham was walking along and he was saying, I obey you, this will mean death. How in the world can death bring blessing? I know it must be if I obey you and it leads to death, somehow you'll bring out of it some kind of resurrection. Whenever you get into one of these situations, you're being tested, and that's what's happening here. You're saying, here's what the Bible says. God says to do this. It looks like to me it's going to lead to death, but I guess I will obey, and it'll lead me to some kind of resurrection, some kind of intervention, something I can't even foresee right now, and that's what Abraham did. Whenever you find the command of God seemingly contradicting what you feel will bless you, you're in the gymnasium. You're under the coach. You're under the teacher. The test is arrived. How are you going to do? What are you going to do? And that's how God's tests work. God says to do this even though he promises to bless you, and it looks like his commands contradict his promises. Actually, some of you may be in a situation like that because you won't even allow it to happen. The minute you see a command of God which seems to contradict something you feel down deep would bless you, you don't even struggle about it. You don't even fight it. You don't even prepare for the test. You don't even take a look at yourself in your own heart. You say, well, God wouldn't want me to do that. He wouldn't be a loving God. And if that's how you define God, God only as a God of love, you have a God who can never tell you to do something utterly against your deepest feelings. You don't have a God. You're, you're your own God. And so tests come when God crosses our vision and hope for what we want to happen in our lives and our strongest deepest feelings you know years ago uh, Debbie Boone uh, a singer a Christian uh, sang what I call the national anthem for feelers it was a song called you light up my life and part of that song said it can't be wrong if it what feels so right do people live that way today absolutely 
Do you live that way today? You struggle, don't you? You struggle. So do I. But the God we love, the God we know, the God who's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light will cross our will. He will do it. I have a God who cares for me. I have a God who has given me purpose, who's given meaning to my life. But he's also a God who will cross my will. He will do it. Now, why do we need tests? We've talked about what tests are. We talk about how they work. Now, why do we need them? You say, oh, so that's what a test is. Well, that's severe. Why do we need tests? What would be the importance of why would God send such severe tests to cross our wills? Why would it be my wisdom against his wisdom? And the answer again in the very request God makes to Abraham, he says back in 22 of Genesis, take your son and offer him as a whole burnt offering. Whole burnt offering. It's important to see what kind of sacrifice God is asking for here. In the Old Testament, we know there are lots of different sacrifices. You had a thank offering. You had a drink offering. You had a first fruits offering. And you would offer part of it. But then you had something called the whole burnt offering. And that was an offering that was burnt entirely. A whole burnt offering represented giving of yourself all that you have and all that you are to God without reserve and without remainder. You say, why did God ask that from Abraham? Why did Abraham need to give his particular son as a whole burnt offering? Why? And when God originally came to Abraham, we read it in Genesis 22, he says, Abraham, Abraham, and Abraham says, here I am. God says, take your son. But he doesn't just say your son and offer him as a burnt offering. No, there is an emphasis here that you might easily miss. When you read the story, you say, oh, my word, he says, take your son, your only son whom you love, and offer him as a burnt offering. And the fact of the matter is actually Abraham, uh, Isaac wasn't Abraham's only son. Abraham also had a son through Hagar named Ishmael. The point of the matter, however, is as far as Abraham was concerned, Isaac was his only, and actually every place only is used in the Hebrew text of Genesis 22. There is no word son after it. Isaac is his only, only, his little only. He's his only. You say, well, what's wrong with that? I mean, he waited for him such a long time. A.W. Tozer put it this way. He says, Abraham had become the love slave of his son. Isaac was his only. Isaac was the little only of his life. What's so ironic about it is he became a love slave of his son for good reasons, compelling reasons. There's nothing bad about Isaac. Isaac was a wonderful gift of God. Abraham had waited and waited, you know the story, for years. And God says, I will give you a son through your wife, Sarah, who will be your heir. And he waited for years. And when Isaac came, Isaac was special because he represented to uh, Abraham the faithfulness of God to keep his promises. Not only that, but Abraham was very, very old when Isaac was born. 
And of course he was special because he represented youth when Abraham was very old. And for all good reasons, Abraham became, as it were, a love slave of Isaac. And therein is a lesson for us. I'm not a judo expert, but I did stay in a Holiday Inn Express last No. <laughs> Just saying if you're listening. Judo, or sin, is a judo expert. Let me tell you what I mean by that. A judo expert says the bigger they come, doesn't bother me. I don't care if my assailant weighs 400 pounds and I weigh 110 pounds. It doesn't bother me because a judo expert uses his enemy's forward motion and weight against him. And what sin does is he takes the best motives and the best things about us in our life and he turns it up too high. And the real enemy of God in your life is not so much your sins, it's the good things God has given us. It's these wonderful things that become to us our little onlys. Do you know what that means? Take your only and offer it up. What's your only? When sin takes a good thing and turns it into your only, your bottom line, things like, if only I was married, everything would be great. Now, you don't say that out loud, but at a deep level, you believe it. But what happens to you if you do? If only my career would just get to this place. If only my achievements would get to this place. If only I had a certain kind of beauty or a certain kind of body, then my life would be great. It would be wonderful. Those good things have become our Isaacs. They're sapping our energy and our strength because when those things become our onlys and get into our life, we become full of drivenness. I will confess to you that when I moved here in 1988 to plant this church, I turned something very, very good planting a church in Las Vegas, Nevada, into the biggest, fattest idol you have ever seen. And I was obsessed and driven with it. And I lived and breathed church planting. And I have never been so obsessed with something in my life. And I'll never forget one night, three of the men in the church called me up and said, we want to come over, we're just going to sit in the hot tub and hang out and enjoy some time together. And I thought, well, that sounds like a great thing. So the minute I stepped into the hot tub, all three of them, I opened my mouth, all three of them said, shut up. They said, do not say one word tonight about the church or about your plans or about what you're trying to do or the latest news or whatever. Do not talk. That was so hard for me. I was basically mute the whole night. Why? Because something very good had become my Isaac. And you say, well, planting a church is a wonderful thing. Sure, you've got to have that kind of drive to do it. But an Isaac fills our life with drive and drivenness to achieve it. It fills our life with anger, bitterness, and despair. Only if these things have become Isaac's. In Jeremiah 17, it says, But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. He will be like a tree planted by the water. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. Do you know what it's saying? It says if you're despondent, if you're in despair, if you're bitter, it is because something besides God has become your trust. 
God looked at something in Abraham's life that had become his little only. His little only. It had become his ultimate. It had become his bottom line. As a result, Abraham was a slave, and God could not let that go. He cannot let that go. He won't let it go. If you want to master life, your only has to be subject to the circumstances of life. It has to be God. The only way you can overcome this tremendous worry, up and down, tremendous despair, is if those things which are presently at your center get decentered. And that's what tests do. Now, by the way, Abraham's record on passing tests was 0 for 5. <laughs> the man was pathetic. Every time he got under pressure, he did what? He lied. Now, people talk about everybody lying today. Well, that's nothing new. Satan is the father of lies, and that's what you get in the opening chapters of the Bible, is him lying all the time. But Abraham, every time he got scared about his wife and Egypt and all that, he'd tell a lie. And he failed, and he failed, and he failed, and he failed. Because he was a fearful person. But if you want to understand why God brings tests in our life, often is they are to get our little onlys out of the center of our heart and put them on the periphery where they belong. And there's only one place God will have in us, and that's the middle of our heart. That's God coming to us and saying, these things are sapping you of your strength. They're sapping you of your greatness. They're sapping you of your energy. We have to move it off center. We have to get it on the periphery. We have to demote it. Sometimes we have to die to it. But we need this because what he is saying, Abraham, I want your heart as a whole burnt offering. You won't be free until that happens. All you are and all you have without reserve, and without remainder. So how do we pass these tests? Well, Abraham passed this test in two ways, and I want to mention them. One of the ways he did it was he reasoned. That's what we're told in Hebrews 11. The second thing he did was he looked to the Lamb. He reasoned, and he looked to the Lamb. Let's look at both of them. First of all, he reasons. Notice what it says there in that last verse. It's just amazing. Abraham was told by God, offer up your son as a burnt offering. And it says, Abraham went. Why? Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. Figuratively speaking, he did. What does that mean? Well, it's wonderful. First of all, it shows that Christian obedience is never thoughtless. It always comes through reasoning. It's always filled with thinking. It's never a blind leap. It's a leap with your eyes wide open looking at God. Now, what did Abraham do? Some people say Abraham knew that God would raise Isaac from the dead. He didn't know that. He believed that, but he didn't know that. But there is something interesting. He told the two servants, stay here with the donkey, and me and the boy, or I and the boy, are going to go up on the mountain and worship. And who's coming back? Both of us. Both of us. 
Now here's what's going on in Abraham. He said, contrary to everything I see in my life right now that makes absolutely no sense, contrary to what anyone would look and say, how in the world could God be putting you through this? Could a loving God... You know I had a hard time with uh, Abraham and Genesis 22? The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard wrote a book called Fear and Trembling, all about God. And Kierkegaard, being the existentialist he was, thrived on this narrative, but he couldn't ever come to terms with why God would ask him to do it. And Kierkegaard probably knows now. I believe Kierkegaard was a believer. I think he's a Christian. That didn't, that didn't get him into heaven. I won't even get him a good cup of coffee. But I think he understood it. It would have been presumption, not faith. You don't see Abraham whistling a happy tune like the seven dwarfs going up the mountain. No, he, he, it, he didn't say, this is going to be great. I wonder how he's going to do it. There's nothing like that because it does not say Abraham reasoned that God would raise him from the dead. It said Abraham reasoned that God could raise him from the dead. Could is different than would. Abraham looked at the capability of God as he began to think about the big picture. And the first principle is this. Something that looks narrow in the narrow, crazy to obey God. But if you stand back and look at the big picture, if you look at who God is, you look at who you are, you look at what he's done in the past for you, obedience is always utterly reasonable. In other words, there's nothing more reasonable than to obey God when it looks crazy to me. Did you hear that? If you stand back and look at the whole, it only ever looks crazy if you narrow it down. That is why Abraham could reason. This is the final test in the life of Abraham. But it's not his first one. He was continually tested. God said, go out, get out, but I won't tell you where. Settle down, but I won't tell you when. I'll give you a son, but I won't tell you when or how. And if you read the story of Abraham, you see again and again and again Abraham failing the test because he didn't trust God. He saw the command of God going this way and the apparent blessing going that way, and he took the apparent road. He lied about Sarah, I mentioned this earlier, being his sister twice because he didn't trust God would protect him. He slept with a slave woman, Hagar, and had a son by her. But all kinds of tremendous problems came about in the family. Polygamy, of course, is a very oppressive thing, no matter what TV tries to do with it. All kinds of problems. And here's Abraham's reasoning, and he's saying this. Lord God, every time I have tried to pit my wisdom against your wisdom, I have lost. Every time. I thought I was wiser than you. I screwed up my life. Every time I tried to save my life, I have lost it. Every time I tried to lose my life through obedience to you, I saved it. I found joy. I found hope. And I won't be fooled again. You're capable of raising from the dead. Maybe it'll be a literal resurrection. Maybe it won't. I don't know. But I know this, that obedience, though it looks like death, will lead to a resurrection that I cannot foresee. But there's a second thing that Abraham did to pass the test. And the second thing is just beautiful. He looked to the Lamb. 
And you're not going to know that until you understand what happens next. Uh, it's amazing as you read this narrative. You see the old man under the stars wrestling. He doesn't know why, but he obeys God. He gets up. He goes. And when he's at the foot of the mountain, he told the servants to stay behind. We're going up alone. He put wood on which Isaac would be sacrificed on his back. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? They walk up the hill. Isaac cries out, wait a minute, something's wrong here. We have wood for the fire. You got the knife. Where's the lamb? And Abraham says, at the top of the mountain, God will show us the lamb. Now, I imagine Isaac was 14 to 16 years old at this point, And Abraham was probably over 100. And I imagine in a toe-to-toe -to -toe match, Isaac could take him. But... You know what Abraham says? At the top of the mountain, God will show us a lamb. Now the translation we read says God will provide. But it's literally the Hebrew word for see. Which means God will show us. God will show us the lamb. At that moment, Abraham said some kind of payment must be possible. God will do it. God will finally show us a way in which he can be both just and the justifier of us. So he got up and he laid the sticks out. He put Isaac on it. He raised the dagger. God, through an angel, says, stop your hand or stay your hand. Now I know you fear me because you would not withhold your only, your only, your little only. He's out of the center. He can't kill you the way he was. He can sap you the way he was. He's yours. Here's an offering, a ram in the thicket. Abraham was able to meet the need and pass the test because he vaguely looked to the Lamb of God. We actually see it. Abraham said, I can obey because God will show me the lamb. We're in a position of even greater advantage. We should be far more true to our principles, far more courageous, far more unflappable in our obedience to the, to the Lord because he's already shown us the lamb. And do you know where this was? Mount Moriah. Do you know what Mount Moriah was? It was the place where the temple was built right next to Calvary. Here's what we see. Like Abraham, we see God centuries later walking up into those same mountains with his son. Like Abraham, we see God putting the wood for his son's sacrifice on his back. Like Isaac, Jesus cries out to his father. Isaac said, where's the lamb? Abraham said, I don't know, and kept going. In the end, all Abraham offered was his heart. When Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? God kept going. There was nobody there to say to him, stay thy hand, because God did offer up his firstborn as a sacrifice for sin. Abraham didn't have to offer his. I don't have to offer mine. None of us has to go to the mountain and do that. So what does all this mean? If Abraham could see what God did on Mount Calvary, and maybe he did, do you know what he would have said? Do you remember how God said to Abraham, now I know? Abraham would have said to God what all of us should be saying, if you want to have lives of greatness. 
you will say it. Now I know how you can be both the God of command and the God of promise. Now I know how you can be both a God of justice and the justifier of those who believe. Now I know you love me because you did not withhold your only whom you love. That's how you get to be a great person. What's facing you right now? Can you see it through this lens? You feel like, oh my gosh, my life is being assaulted. And what I'm facing right now seems to be an assault upon my life because my whole life is wrapped up in these things that God is trying to decenter from me. And that's why it looks like an assault on your life. It's not, but you need to say, now I know you love me. Therefore, what do I stand to lose by being faithful to you if it's nothing compared to what you lost by being faithful to me? Your love overwhelms me. This is good, great news. So what are you facing right now? Are you struggling? Do you see... No matter what it is, no matter what anger you're struggling with, what despondency you're struggling with, what anxiety uh, is something that needs to be decentered. And how can it be decentered? How can you obey and trust God and move whatever that little only is off center only by looking up, him, up at him and saying, as you see him go up the mountain, now I know you love me. If you were willing to give this up for me, I'll give what I have to give up for you. It's nothing compared to what you have done for me. The book of Romans tells us, He that spared not his only. That's what that means. His only. Nobody held back the hand of God when he poured out the judgment cup upon his son, the dregs of his wrath. Nobody stopped it. And Paul says, if God spared not his only son, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? That's how you pass the test. You look at the lamb. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you show us the truth of this uh, just by being a pastor and knowing the flock. I know that there are many people in this room at the present going through, offering up their Isaac. And I pray that you would help us to see that to obey is better than sacrifice. And to hearken is better than the fat of rams. And so we pray that we would look and see your wisdom and trust that though your ways are higher than our ways and your thoughts are higher than our thoughts, we can trust you because you've shown us by giving your only to save us. Now, Father, as we continue to worship, may we give us those who've tasted and have seen that you are good. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.